This is the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by HSI. This episode was recorded July 28th, 2021. My name is Jill James, HSI's Chief Safety Officer. And today I'm joined by Aaron Balin. Aaron is an EHS program and management professional with 19 years experience developing and managing programs related to safety and well-being. Aaron studied sociology and psychology as an undergrad and has a master's degree in business administration. Aaron joins us today from Wisconsin. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, I am excited to hear your story and excited to hear about sociology and psychology too, but um, it's your story to share. So tell us, how did you, what's your winding path into this profession? Well, uh, having the opportunity to be on this podcast has given me some time to reflect on how did I get into the safety profession. Mm. And um, it has been definitely a journey. Um, As you said, I went to school for sociology and psychology as an undergrad. I went to the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. Um, When I started uh, at the university, I thought I was going to be going into the social work program. So my goal was to be a social worker. I really wanted to help people um, and connect them with resources and make sure that they were they were cared for, that they had um, their basic needs met and and felt connected mm-hmm. and had support systems. And so that was really a, a driver for me. I kind of always thought I was going to be a social worker since I was, you know, middle school, high school age. And, yeah. Why did you think that back then? Um, I just really had a passion for helping people. I felt like there was um, a disproportionate um, uh, allocation of resources, Mm. and I wanted to make sure that people had the things that they needed to be successful in their life, Mm -hmm. that they had opportunity to um, live their full potential. And without some of those things, those needs being met um, and having uh, connections to resources that would allow them to strengthen themselves and their families, I thought they were already limited. They were already at a disadvantage. And so making sure that uh, we, you know, I was a part of a system that could intervene and connect was was really important to me. And the only way I knew how to do that at the time uh, or thought I could do that the best was by being a social worker. Yeah. And when I went to UWL as an undergrad, uh, they had the program and then eventually they uh, removed the program from their offerings and I was not able to enroll in it, which was kind of a, a hidden blessing, I suppose, <laughs> uh, made me choose something else. And so I thought the closest thing to social work seemed to be sociology And so I jumped into that and Mm -hmm. that uh, sociology really got into my brain in a way that allowed me to be more science-based with that social part of it as well. And so Mm -hmm. it stretched that, uh, that research part of me, um, that analytical part of me that I wanted to, that probably needed to be strengthened and probably needed to be tapped into. And so Um, I really enjoy the science side of it and uh, understanding how social systems work. Um, It gave you more of a foundational understanding of social systems. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was a it was a very good program. Um, Completely enjoyed it, had no clue what I was going to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, At that point, I knew I wasn't probably I could have probably gone on for like a master's in social work, but just really did not know and thought, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy the moment. 
And so I did. And That's pretty I, insightful for a young person. <laughs> it felt good. It mm-hmm. felt like the right thing to do. And I just remember going to class every day feeling hyped. Like I loved class. I loved being in a room of people who were picking apart all of our social constructs, you know, all of the things that were created by design, um, mm-hmm. by access to resources, by our human nature, by our sociological nature, our psychological nature. And so it was just fascinating to me to sit and kind of uh, pick apart everything historically for where we are today, as well as what are the things that we're continuing to do that are going to create our future. So it was it was just great to be in a classroom like that. And so I just really enjoyed I've just really enjoyed sociology a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a it was a it was a great learning experience. So and and so you 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 graduate. You're not sure exactly what kind of job you can get. Your family's probably asking you the same thing. Exactly, um, <laughs> exactly. I know, I, I know mine was too. Um, so so what happens next? So I graduated um, and decided that I was going to do a year of AmeriCorps, which is mm. um, a state, a United States stateside program where you volunteer your time, your services. And the program that I was involved with uh, focused on youth services. And I knew that that was something I wanted to do because it was going to help me better understand the type of work I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to help. I, that social worker part of me was still there. That, yeah. that part that I wanted to connect people to resources was, was very much still there. And so I did a year of AmeriCorps um, and uh, some of the um, opportunities that I had were working at homeless shelters and food banks. Um, I worked uh, with youth programs like mentorships, um, and I worked in the school system as a as a tutor and as a mentor um, mm-hmm. at the Boys and Girls Club as a mentor. And so I really enjoyed working in youth services. I always kind of thought um, that would be where I would probably end up if I was a social worker. And so that was excellent because it led me to my first job working at a community action agency. So was all of, was all, it was your AmeriCorps work all in Wisconsin or was it in different parts of the U.S.? Mine was actually all in Wisconsin and it was all based in La Crosse where I graduated. We had um, a youth experiencing success AmeriCorps program here. And so I hopped into that thinking, you know, I wasn't making much money as a college student. I can probably go another year without making much more money (laughs) and uh, give back to my community, meet some people, um, connect with some organizations that are doing work that I really believe in and try to find myself a little bit like what was I going to do with that sociology degree? And And you really learned a lot more about your own home, essentially, your own home community. Yeah. You know, when you're a college student and you're on campus all the time and you're working all the time you don't really get to know the community that you're living in. You're kind of a, a guest sometimes, you know, you're mm-hmm. a visitor, even though you're here in your community, in your, at your college community for a long time. Um, a lot of times you don't venture off campus and you don't get connected to the resources that are out there. And this was a great way for me to get connected after college uh, with the resources in our community and just realize what a great community lacrosse is and how resource rich we are, which was amazing to me that I could be a part of that. So yeah, um, yeah but AmeriCorps led me to my first job and I worked in uh, at, a, at a community
Community Action Agency and Youth Violence Prevention. Um, I also managed a program for foster care transitional uh, housing, um, where youth uh, in foster care were transitioning out of the foster care system into living on their own and needed to find ways to take care of their basic needs. Mm-hmm. And then we also had a mentorship program that I supervised. Uh, so it was, I, I got to work a lot with youth, but it was a lot about the basic fundamental needs that people have um, in order to feel connected, safe, and secure in their communities. And mm-hmm. so, I, you know, after thinking about this podcast and thinking about my work history, I started to realize how important those needs are to be met for people to feel safe and secure. Yeah. And, um, you and know, valued. access and valued mm-hmm. and a valuable uh, contributor to yep. their community and to right. their families. Mm-hmm. And so um, all of those things uh, kind of just started to feed who I was as a as a person and really spoke to me. And so um, I did that for two years and then I went on to become a manager at a healthcare clinic for low income populations. Mm-hmm. Um, again, making sure people have safe, affordable health care and connecting them with resources, mm-hmm. educating them on what their options are and their opportunities are, making sure that they understand the health care system and insurance and, um, mm-hmm. you know, just how to take care of themselves, yeah. uh, their whole well-being. And so um, a lot of times low-income populations don't have access to fulfilling those needs. And mm-hmm. I was, I'm fortunate enough that I live in a community where we have a lot of resources for people um, who may not think they have access. Yeah, it it was, it really fulfilling. So fulfilling, completely Mm -hmm. fulfilling, um, very (laughs) good work and all in the nonprofit sector. And um, it seems to uh, be sometimes, not always, but it seems to be sometimes that in the nonprofit sector, uh, the skill set that is, appropriate for the nonprofit sector doesn't translate well into the for-profit sector. Mm-hmm. And isn't that true? Yeah. yeah, it's you know, it's unfortunate because yeah. nonprofits are businesses like any other business mm-hmm. and they have resources where they have to balance, you know, income and expenses and and their service is just a little bit different. It's not to make a profit, it is to uh, you know, help people um, you know, better themselves and Mm -hmm. have, have access to resources. And so, um, that is, that's their service. And unfortunately, sometimes I think we undervalue, um, the expertise and the skill sets that's required to, to manage programs like that, Mm -hmm. you know, talk about being financially responsible. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Shoestring budget for sure. So Mm -hmm. you get very Mm -hmm. creative and innovative in those, Mm -hmm. in those areas. I know that, I know that when I want to learn about creativity and innovation in terms of um, accessing resources or asking for resources, I'll go to one of my friends who um, is the executive director for, or, um, uh, the community in my state that uh, that aids people who are uh, in housing instability situations. I mean, and she knows how to connect people and to resources better than anyone I've ever met. 
So, you know, if I if I'm looking for some ideas, like how would you navigate this? I call Rhonda. Rhonda, explain to me how you would go about this. <laughs> you know, she always has some ideas that I never thought of. <laughs> it is amazing how resourceful people in the nonprofit community have mm-hmm. to be um, and learn to be, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just to get the job done because they're really you know, hopefully everyone's living their passion, but usually they're living their passion on, you know, lower wages and, you know, just are, are, you know, living through their hearts in ways that they just really want to help people. And, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it's at all costs, you know, trying to get things done. And so, and I bet uh, that really translates to your work in safety and I don't, I'm not trying to pull you ahead in your story. I want to hear it, but you know, so many of us in this professional practice of health and safety don't have access to funds or don't have a budget. And so, you know, you can deploy those same methods that you learned uh, working in the nonprofit world. Like who am I going to align myself with to be able to um, fund this um, program project piece of software, whatever it is. And how can I get it done without maybe even asking for financial resources? I mean, there's uh, so many great uh, opportunities, avenues, resources that companies have available to them that I'm not sure that they always lean into um, and get connected with. And so, um, yeah, for sure. It's absolutely uh, translatable. And that's kind of where I saw, you know, when I looked at you know, what is happening in the communities that I was working with when I worked in nonprofit and how could I translate some of those skills that I had to mm-hmm. the for-profit sector? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that became very apparent to me was um, the idea of improving processes and uh, collaboration and synergy. And when you work in safety and when you work in for-profit, you really have to bring all of the business units together, all of the departments together to work on safety. It's not isolated to the safety department. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I, I took a jump. I took a leap and I applied for a job at a for-profit business. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing more different than healthcare than a foundry. And so I went to a foundry. <laughs> oh my gosh, isn't that true? <laughs> and, wow. uh, yeah, so I went to a foundry. And, healthcare to um, foundry, okay. Healthcare to foundry, mm-hmm. yeah. Nonprofit uh, youth services and, and, and healthcare to a foundry. And so mm-hmm. um, I walked in and I was very fortunate that um, I worked with a team of people who were very supportive of my skills and my transition and teaching me about the industry. And I'm a lifelong learner. And so I just, you know, I soaked it up. I was so excited to learn something different and something new, something a little bit more technical um, because the foundry industry is very technical and very science-based. And And so, and just like intense work environment. I remember the first time I walked into a foundry when I was um, as uh, when I was an investigator with OSHA, and I was in my early twenties, and I had never been into a foundry in my life, and I remember walking into one thinking, "Oh, this is hell on earth." <laughs> I mean, because it's like hot. It is <laughs> molten metal with mm-hmm. like visual 
flames, yes. if you will. That's <laughs> yes. And people are working around these hot tanks of molten metal, and it's it's intense. It's dangerous. It's it can be depending on ventilation, dark and dim, yes. depending on what's happening with safety and health or not mm-hmm. happening with it. And I thought, oh my god. Like this, like is hell on, you know, it's like the thing that, um, um, action films are filmed in these environments, right? It is very much (laughs) so what action films are filmed in. It is. I I had the exact same response and I thought, what am I doing here? Uh What am I going to do here? And to some degree. I have to do all the things here like today. Yeah. That's (laughs) pretty much. I, and I, when I was hired, I didn't. They didn't have like a specific job for me. They knew they wanted me on their team, Hmm. but they kind of created this position for me. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate that all of this happened. Um, And they were going to teach me the industry and they were going to coach me along the way on, you know, the industry itself and what the needs were for the business. And they wanted me to just dive in, learn be a fresh set of eyes. And of course I was probably the freshest set of eyes considering I had never set foot in a foundry before that. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I did, I, I remember what my first tour through the foundry on my interview and I was wearing like patent leather shoes and, uh, you know, dress pants and it was noisy. And I think I, I, if I recall correctly, I maybe had, um, earplugs in, um, safety glasses for sure. It was so loud in there. I had a hard time hearing anything. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, wow, if there's anything that's totally different than healthcare, which is pristinely clean and organized and whatever, yeah. the foundry was the complete opposite. And I thought, bring it on. Like, this mm-hmm. is the challenge I want. I would love to learn more about this. And after doing some research, the environmental side of me was very um, appreciative of you know, foundries being one of our original recyclers, right? And so yeah. just reusing materials and, um, you know, lowering costs to reuse materials, but also, you know, a very good way of protecting the environment and how long lasting castings actually are, you know, mm-hmm. just the, mm-hmm. the, the, um, the structural integrity of the parts that are made and pieces that are made. It's just, really fascinating. And so um, I just love that idea. And I, I couldn't have been more excited about it, jumped right in, got there and started working on some of their safety programs. And when I got there, uh, one of my best resources was our insurance company. And I didn't know anything about, I shouldn't say I didn't know anything. I knew very little about occupational safety in a manufacturing environment. Sure. And so, yeah, I mean, how could you? This I, was yeah, your, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was my first job in this in this way, and and really, I was kind of safety was under my umbrella, under my scope, and I shared safety with maintenance, and I shared it with human resources, but I wasn't. There was no isolated safety professional at the foundry at that time, mm-hmm. and so. I shared that, you know, and we were all kind of on this learning journey and figuring things out. And uh, I was very fortunate that one of my roles was to work on their safety program and develop, really fully develop their safety program. And then one of my other roles was to really fully develop out and improve their maintenance operations. (laughs) And 
it really kind of gave me this strong appreciation for uh, manufacturing and maintenance and how it relates to safety and connecting all of those threads as to, you know, we're asking people to work on equipment that's designed to do a specific thing, that if it doesn't do that and it breaks down and it's um, no longer efficient or effective, that it could cause harm and injury. Um, And that sometimes, you know, companies unfortunately use equipment that's not meant for the intention that it was designed. And so Mm -hmm. what does that mean for someone's safety? Um, How do we make sure that we're doing the PMs on this equipment, that we've got the right parts, that we're using the right replacement parts? Um, Mm -hmm. And so that it has the right capacity and we're not exceeding its capacity and creating a dangerous situation. Um, so it was just really, it, it all seemed to kind of fit together and it helped me really develop out their safety program. I think so much stronger than had I just been in safety because I got to work so closely with the maintenance team and how the equipment actually works or was yeah. supposed to work. Yeah. Um, it, it probably fast tracked your ability to make things happen because you, you were able to dig into those processes yeah. so between and turn the, over the hazards. And you had, you had yeah. said that you were educating yourself through the insurance carrier, yeah. um, which was brilliant. Um, was that something that you figured out or did someone like an HR say, Hey, I think they might have some resources. How did you get that awareness? Well, we, uh, the company I worked for had a really strong relationship with our um, insurance broker and mm-hmm. they met with them on a regular basis before I had even gotten there. And yeah. so I was very fortunate that I got to sit in on those on those meetings when they were doing like work comp review and our yeah. um, the risk manager offered to me uh, the option to come through and do a walkthrough and do a risk assessment and a hazard assessment. And so we did those um, on a pretty regular basis. We met with them quarterly and Mm -hmm. I found it to be so valuable. He was such a great resource, Mm -hmm. um, and connected me with great resources. And so not only was our broker really good at it, but our insurance, uh, company, our provider itself, uh, had a lot of resources. And so I just, again, tapped into everything I could. We did all the walkthroughs, um, you know, he showed me things that kind of opened my eyes. I could ask questions because sometimes when you, I hate to say it, but sometimes when you're working with a company and you identify something as being possibly unsafe or unsafe and mm-hmm. you're questioning it and you're not a hundred percent certain because you're not familiar with the industry, you're not familiar with. Yeah. You're um, just walking through it in your head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're just walking through it in your head. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, it's not always an open book. And that's not, I don't think necessarily on purpose. I think sometimes we have bias and we just have blinders up. And, um, this was a, this was a family owned business where they had been, uh, in the business for, I mean, you know, over a century, um, and a, a very long time. And so they grew up with this basically as being their second home. And so, when you're so used to something, you don't yeah. always see those things. That's right. And it takes, mm-hmm. and that's what they hired me for was the fresh set mm-hmm. of eyes, which mm-hmm. I had. And so I had someone I could ask those questions to outside and someone who had, thankfully, 
uh, than in other foundries. And so Mm -hmm. that was really helpful for me too, because I hadn't at that point. So. Yeah, they could see uh, best practices. They had observed it in other places. And I, I and I thank you for sharing that about the insurance brokers and insurance companies. I know that I've shared this, um, you know, on, on previous episodes as well in terms of resources for our listening audience. But there really is powerful resources to tap essentially for no cost. I mean, obviously, the employer is paying um, premiums and whatnot to their insurance providers, but they do have these professionals that you can tap, like Aaron's describing, that can really help you, whether you are, you know, a seasoned professional or just getting started. There's definitely ways to leverage those resources. It's amazing. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work with the same insurance company uh, for my entire seven years that I've been specifically in safety and in manufacturing, uh, yeah. manufacturing safety. And, you know, the company that I have been uh, privileged to work with has had the opportunity to borrow at no cost equipment for industrial hygiene, um, free lab testing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just really uh, like tons of consultative services where they can actually document and provide you with reports if you need that for, you know, any kind of support for, uh, you know, upper management or investment in safety, it has been um, really invaluable. And it's probably where I've learned most of the stuff uh, besides the OSHA standards. It's probably where I've learned most of the stuff I know about safety. Yeah. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. So Aaron, what, um, I don't know how long you stayed at the foundry. You'll probably tell us, but at some point you also earned your MBA. So where does that get woven into this story as well? (laughs) Yeah, actually. So when I was at, uh, when I was in nonprofit healthcare, I decided to go back to school Mm -hmm. to get my master's degree. And, um, I, that was kind of a little bit of a journey for me too. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted my master's degree in. You know, I was working full time and I had to find a program that was going to allow me to continue to earn um, my income and be covered under insurance mm-hmm. as well as be an adult learner and spend hopefully my evenings um, improving myself and, and my education. And mm-hmm. so uh, while I was at the um, nonprofit healthcare uh, company, I decided to go back uh, mm-hmm. for my master's degree in business administration. And I was lucky, again, lacrosse is very resource rich. We've got three higher education institutions. And so I had a pick of several programs. And one of them was a uh, master's degree in business administration. Mm-hmm. And it was a great program. I At first, I didn't think that that's really what I wanted to do. I couldn't I couldn't connect the dots. Like, how was I going from nonprofit uh, healthcare um, <laughs> to my master's degree in business administration? Is that really what I wanted to do? And as mm-hmm. I started to think about it, um, you know, I was going to spend the rest of my life working. Uh, well, hopefully until I retire, but you know what I mean. Yeah, um, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to spend a lot of my life working. And um, workplaces are. Uh, micro uh social constructs right um they're they're a little community in and of itself and i thought you know it's a great way to understand the business side of things and Mm -hmm. my focus was a lot on leadership and strategy Mm -hmm. and so i thought that could be useful anywhere and again even if i stayed in nonprofit uh nonprofits are businesses and um it's more and more 
important now for those nonprofits to be seen as such and to be managed as such. And so it, even if I hadn't left uh, nonprofit healthcare, I, I thought it would be a, a good fit. And then that's when I got offered the position at the foundry. And Makes then sense. I the got, MBA yeah, opened the door for you there. It did. It really did. Yeah. It was, it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, regardless of what I wanted from it, I knew I enjoyed learning and I just really wanted to go back and be in a classroom and have that same experience I had when I was in sociology and just loving the activity of learning and being in a cohort of people who were generating ideas and talking to each other about ideas. And so um, that connectivity, that classroom learning experience um, Mm -hmm. is just such a, a driver of a filler for me. So yeah. um that was that was a, a huge part of it. Didn't realize it at the moment until I got into my master's program and I was like, man, I miss this. And so uh, you know, who knows what's next. There's probably mm-hmm. more more classroom opportunities for me in the future I'm seeing <laughs> probably. But uh Yeah, yeah you said you're a lifelong learner, so yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's that's that's kind of where that came into play. And then and that's why the foundry door got open. And I was at the foundry for five years. Um, Mm -hmm. My last two years, I was in the role specifically of um, their EHS director. And Mm -hmm. so I, we had talked about the fact that, you know, we need kind of more of an isolated um, presence in safety and that it wasn't getting its justice and um, that it's really a full-time job. And mm-hmm. so, Amen. Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's it. So that's I. I spent my last two years focused solely on on their safety program and building that out um, in a better way. And so, mm-hmm. uh, and there was a lot going on then at the time. It was really important. I think one of the things that came up during that time was the new silica standard, and in foundries that was huge. And so that took a lot of time is figuring out, you know, where were we at with the silica standard and being in compliance. Um, so it was really timely that all those things lined up kind of at the, oh, yeah. at the same time. I mean, and just fig- navigating and figuring out how to protect people from the hazards of silica, I bet you leaned a lot into the work you had done in medicine. Yeah. it you know, And you, understanding how to navigate, uh, you know, the, the medical monitoring requirements that go along with that law, too. Absolutely. And, hmm. um, we, you know, we had um, a couple of great providers, uh, occupational health providers in our community, and I leaned into them as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, we've got, again, very resource rich in La Crosse. We have two medical institutions, huge medical institutions, and they both have excellent occupational health uh, uh, departments. And so mm-hmm. leaning into them, um, touching base with their resources, understanding what they knew and how we could best get through uh, making sure we were compliant with the standard was really important. You know, documenting what it is that we needed, sharing yeah. them with them what we knew about our facility, and then them coming back to us and saying, you know, here's what we suggest, here's what we recommend as next steps for you know providing uh, medical surveillance, and um, you know, and then of course our uh, insurance company helping us with um, the industrial exposure monitoring, which sure. was really key. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, what, what, what's, what happened after the foundry? Where did you, where did you go next? So then I went to an electronics recycling company 
And Mm -hmm. that was very interesting to me as well. Again, kind of fed that uh, love of protecting the environment and being a recycler and making sure that, in this case, that hazardous materials don't end up being landfilled and sent to um, third world countries where it would impact us globally. And so, and impact people locally, right? Um, yep. So really fed a huge passion for me to make sure that we're uh, operating as a, as a global citizen. Um, so you moved from learning about silica to learning about lead? Would that yes, be, that would, would that be, be accurate. Right? Okay. That would be accurate. <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> and so I got there and the thing that was, you know, when, when you work in manufacturing, you have... Uh, basically a recipe for what it is that you're going to create. And so Ooh. it's kind of easy to understand all mm. of the hazards. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's easier to understand all the hazards. You say, you know, here's this component and here's this component. I'm going to mix it together. This is the process that it's going to take to make this. And there might be some nuances, might be some different pieces of equipment that you use to make certain types of equipment. But basically, there's a lot of similarity. There's a lot of the same stuff that you're hmm. that you're working with um, when you're. That's so interesting. The the recipe analogy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, I, I like that. Yeah, talk talk more about yeah. that. I kind of feel like I, I think I'm understanding because every time I've walked into a manufacturing facility, I always asked sort of the similar question set. Yeah. Though the process, though the product was different, the process was not necessarily exactly so so you know when you go and you make like a casting you have you know certain elements that you put into the furnace that you melt down to make that Mm -hmm. casting happen and there's recipes for that but you have safety data sheets for all of that stuff and so that's easy right you get a product in the door it comes with a label on it you get the safety data sheet from the manufacturer from the Mm -hmm. from the supplier and you can look at all the hazards and you understand the mixture of the components that you're using because you create kind of this recipe. And that's yeah. kind of for anything, you know, you could talk about that with any kind of manufacturing, I suppose. You yeah. kind of know what are the parts that you're going to be using? What are the pieces of equipment that you're going to be using to put all of that together? And equipment's probably pretty similar in any industry um, and relates also to the electronics recycling industry. But one of the things that I thought was the most challenging was when you get electronics in and it's any kind of electronic device that can't be landfilled, Mm -hmm. there are certain components that are the same, but they're all different. And the amount within each piece of electronic equipment can be different based on the manufacturer. Uh, It could be different based on the model. It can be Mm -hmm. different based on the time it was manufactured. So, for instance, something that was manufactured in 1973 versus something that was manufactured in 2003 are going to be very different. The the pieces that make up those components are going to be different. Mm -hmm. And so um, and and we had we got we got everything in Um, we because we were a recycling company, um, we got it could be one-offs. And so you couldn't say, for instance, uh, in the foundry industry, when you're in manufacturing, you're like, I'm going to make this casting. This is the part number for the casting. This is all the components that are made up of it. These are the machines that all goes on. So we know what we're going to do with it. Yeah. When you have recycling stuff comes in and you go, okay, what workstation are we going to put that on? Mm -hmm. And do we know what's inside of it? 
And it's not always just a TV or a monitor. It could be a lot of things because there's so many different types of electronics out there. Sure. Um, and so really trying to tap into what are the common themes of the hazards so that we could be as uh, um, useful of our time, right? Mm -hmm. Because all of this training and, you know, has come training um, takes time to try to uh, express what are the hazards that they're working with and the chemicals uh, that they're working with, the hazardous material that they're working with. And so trying to be as concise as possible. So like to your point, lead, we know that that's pretty common. So we'll yeah. talk about lead a lot. But then mm -hmm. there were other areas where uh, maybe it was a one-off and we had to say, okay, this is just this situation because we we have this one-time contract with this customer where they're going to send us this material once. And then it's, you know, I was on the phone with manufacturers of the material, asking them if they could send me their manuals, asking them if they had any safety data sheets that they could provide to us. And some of these things were things that were manufactured back in the, the 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah. And sometimes that's really hard to find the person who can connect you with what are the hazards of this piece of equipment before we decide that we're going to like break it open and break it down into its smallest commodities. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. That was a whole nother challenge I had never experienced in safety. Oh, what an inch! I mean, what an interesting job. I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, you have to figure this out before you can send it through the process of the recycling facility. Yes. And I bet you had to do it sort of quickly. You do have to do it pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of uh, storage space for uh, uh -huh. that material. And um, and of course, you know, just making sure that your customers are taken care of on the business side of things and and they're getting, you know, their needs met. And so it was it was really, really challenging. And you did have to do it quickly. You had you know, I was probably called out on the floor uh, for those kind of things way more frequently than when I was at the foundry. At the foundry, I had a little bit more of the uh dare I say, luxury of mm -hmm. doing more walk-arounds um, and talking and connecting with, with team members. Um, when I was at the recycling company, I was more problem-solving and troubleshooting um, on a pretty regular basis. And yeah. so it was just a very different, they were very different experiences and seeing the two different sides of one is creating the product and then two is on the other side of this, like what happens, disassembling it, like what happens yeah. after it's done? And yeah. then how, how much do you not know when you're taking something apart and you don't know what is in it? Yep. And, yep. and um, so if you're, if you're wired for sort of a mystery and you like trying to, you know, really discover and break things down, um, that could that could be a super fun job for people it, who are like that. You know, if you, if you like something new coming at you every day, that would be a great job. It absolutely <laughs> would be a great job for someone who loves that. And it's very interesting because it's an up and coming industry and there's not a lot known sometimes even about the hazards of the material that are that the materials that are being used because, sure. you know, electronic one, it's proprietary, right? A lot of times yeah. it's it we're using stuff that we don't know a lot about. For instance, we didn't know all of this information about lithium batteries and oh, lithium yeah. ion batteries and now yeah. that is huge is the what we know about the hazards the fire hazards and the volatility of of lithium batteries and lithium batteries are in everything yeah, and so are. you know it's we're just learning so it's it's a 
It's a new industry. If you're looking at being like on the cutting edge and pioneer kind of, you know, problem solving, figuring it out, um, to your point, that's definitely an industry to get into for, for mm. safety. Um, challenging, yeah. but uh, very, you're constantly learning. Every day is different. Every day is new. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, our work is often detective-ish mm-hmm. sort of work, if we wanted to call it that. But this sounds like it's... Um, you know, amped up. It is. On that. Yeah, that sounds fun. It is. It was. It was definitely fun. Yeah. So uh-huh. yeah, it was a good time. What happens next? Well, after I uh, was at the electronics recycling company for a couple of years, I decided that I was going to just take a step back and decide what I wanted to do with this variety of experience that I've now kind of Uh, compiled. And Mm -hmm. so I took a step back. I decided to resign from my position. um, And before doing that, I, uh, you know, worked uh, on, you know, making sure that we had, you know, some of the right people in the right spots um, at the company. So Mm -hmm. I took a step back and decided I was going to just reevaluate. Do I want to go back to school, being the lifelong learner that I am? Mm -hmm. Um, Did I want to do something that uh, encompassed all of the work uh, experiences that I had had? Um, Do I want to stay in safety in in total? Um, And then realizing, and again, to to credit of uh, being invited onto this podcast, I have realized that everything in total that I've been doing is related to safety. Uh, sometimes I don't <laughs> think we think of it that broadly um, mm-hmm. when we think of occupational health and safety. Yeah. But uh, yeah. really, when you're talking about safety for people in general, um, you know that's that's a pretty basic need and it's pretty broad. And so um, I'm just kind of taking some time to do some self care and some reflection and. Uh, hopefully grow myself a little bit more and, and push myself into the next right direction. I've been very fortunate that I've had, I think, a really healthy, balanced professional career. And I just hope to continue, I think, down that path and yeah. move that forward. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you, you, you left your, you left your job. And mm-hmm. I think that this is, this is a really good conversation for us to be having for our listening audience right now. You know, our, our professional practice um, for the last year and counting, year and a half and counting, has really experienced, because of the p- pandemic, things we've never experienced before because of the obvious piece, the new hazard that no one has ever dealt with before. Right. So there's that. Right. Um, but there was also all of this... Um, social dynamic that went along with it, right? And people in our profession, um, you know, scrambling to take care of their employees, the stress of dealing with a new hazard, the stress of a hazard that was not only at work, but at home and in every part of your being, layered on top of the various ways employers, community, family members, the human body reacted to it. So I would, you know, there are so many in our professional practice who are looking for work right now, who for one reason or another decided, I'm out of this place, I'm looking for something else, Um, you know, 
I was looking at a job board today, this morning before we recorded, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there are so many jobs open in our field right now. I mean, I, I like agree I've more. never seen yeah. before. And so you doing this at this time and taking that time to reflect, Aaron, and figuring out what, as you put it, your next right move, I think there's probably a lot of people who are in your same situation right now. <laughs> I I think that there are a lot of people in, in that situation. I think um, the people that I've networked with and have had this conversation with, friends, family, colleagues, um, you know, some are in awe and envious of the bold move they think I've made. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I it was it was terrifying for me, to be honest. It took a lot of um, self-reflection and thought about what it means, what it, what the last year and a half. And that was mostly, to be honest, that was a huge chunk of the time that I spent at the um, electronics recycling company. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was big and it, yeah. it does take a lot of time and a lot of energy. And yeah. I also think that there are times when um, in, in both situations, um, Sometimes it's good to hand off the position because the position's not mine. The position is of the companies. And yeah. it is also helpful to look at it in a way of am I continuing to do what I want to do? And does someone can someone else come in here and take it that next, that next I, I, I think of it as like I suppose if we're talking about the Olympics, um, a relay, and you hand it off uh-huh. to someone else, hand the baton to someone else, yep. let them take it that next mile, that next whatever distance it is, um, That's right. and, and breathe new energy into it and new ideas. And I'm always, you know, I, I'm a huge proponent of collaboration and synergy, and it's important to be respectful, not only of yourself, which I feel is something I'm doing by taking some time to reflect and do some self-care. I mm-hmm. think it's also important to make sure that you leave the companies that you work for in a better position than when you got there yeah. and that you hand it off to someone who can also do the same. And, yeah. um, you know, I didn't get to pick any of my predecessors, which is fine, but, um, or successors, I should say, not predecessors, successors, um, which is fine, but I'm confident that they all picked people that were fantastic because the companies were great. And, um, you know, I just know that whoever they hire can breathe that next layer of energy and thought and intention into their safety programs. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. important too, is to sometimes is. take a step back and say, you know, I'm going to hand this baton off. It's time for someone else to kind of pick this up and take it that next stretch. And so that's... Right. Because as I think you've said um, in a previous conversation that we had, you know, like, where's the finish line with safety? Yeah. There isn't. There isn't. There isn't. Right? You yeah. just keep going. And, that's right. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's important, I think, to understand ourselves and as safety professionals, to your point with what we just went through this last year and a half, still going through because yep. it's not over it's yet. It's not done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think, you know, doing that self-care and realizing, you know, when it's time to just kind of take a step back, care for yourself um, and and take take a pause, I think is 
if you can, I think is really healthy. Yeah. And sometimes working, uh, I had a coach, a business coach, um, way, way back, uh, way back in the day. And he said, you know, when you're working in the business, you can't work on the business. And it's true. So I consider myself a business. And when mm-hmm. I'm working in it, I can't yeah. work on it. And so I needed some time to work on me yeah. and yeah. To figure that out because my days were just spent, you know, at work, doing work. And yeah. it's hard to come home and think I want to do more work, but I'm myself. And so yeah. um, I just didn't have that time to contemplate that. So this was this is a good opportunity for me to do that. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited because I get to do this podcast and I'm also <laughs> um, a board member for a local safety coalition. So um, I get to go to those meetings and stay connected in my community. And um, I think all those things, you know, just staying connected and staying involved, I think is is really key to part of the self-discovery process and finding opportunities that speak to you um, and ways you can really uh, hone your craft. And yeah. so I'm excited yeah. about that. Yeah. And so as you're, as you're determining what your next right thing is, and I think that's beautifully put that we're working on, you know, we're all working on our next right thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one of those things it sounds like you'd been working on, um, that you had shared with me is developing your own personal mission. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, I have been spending a lot of time. I Again, I've been very fortunate to work for companies that have done, you know, um, personal assessments and, you know, whether it's like the um, Myers-Briggs or um, the uh, Predictive Index. Um, there's some other ones that are out there. And, uh, you know, doing a lot of reading about myself because uh, mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard. We have these... Um, biases. We have a self-bias, right? And, you know, trying to really understand what our strengths are and how we can leverage those strengths. And then how can we, you know, minimize um, and or improve our weaknesses if, you know, whatever those may be, because we all have them. Mm -hmm. And so um, as I've been looking at my personal mission, I really decided that it is to help people live Uh, their full potential by connecting them to resources. And when I've taken the time, and it's been a month now since I've uh, resigned from my position, Mm -hmm. um, I've taken a lot of time to look at the work that I've done and my history. I've taken some time to look at what some assessments have said about me as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done some digging deep into my values and, you know, what are the things that I want to show up in my professional life versus my personal life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, that became my, my mission is to uh, help people live full potential, their full potential by connecting them to resources. And so I pretty much see myself as like a, a catalyst uh, for the potential in others and um, finding ways that I can improve um, their access to resources, improve things that are affecting their lives, uh, create synergy and collaboration. Um, those are that's where I really see myself in. And safety is no different. When I think of safety and, and the needs of people, um, being able to go to work, earn a living. Uh, you know, their time and their skill set is their resource. 
And the fact that they go there every day and give of their time in exchange for currency that they can turn around and use to buy housing and education and food um, and do leisurely things is really that's that's the that's the exchange, right? That's what they're going to work to do. And if any of those things are if their ability, their time or their capacity are limited because of their work. Um, it's really impacting the rest of their life, right? It's impacting all those yeah. other needs that they have to fulfill, um, whether they're basic or whether they're, uh, you know, leisure and enjoyment and improvement, um, personal improvement. It it does impact those things. And so I think it's really important that we always work for a safer workplace and a better workplace for people. Um, and working in safety, which was not intentional completely, but ended up happening uh, has made me really realize how important that is and how connected to it I was without realizing how without realizing it professionally I suppose you know in that occupational health and safety realm of my profession now um, it was kind of something that came to me and I have now fully embraced it will always be a part of me going forward and so I'm very excited about that um, and it's just a, a skill set I think is extremely important. And I just want to throw out there, it's a skill set I think a lot of people can do. Um, you know, if you don't have the degree, if you don't have the certifications, um, you can get into safety. Um, I've just, where I left, I just encouraged um, a woman that I, I worked with um, to join the safety team. And she became the safety coordinator. She excels tremendously. Her value as someone who encourages worker participation and makes sure that she is training and um, making learning about safety fun is in her bones. And she doesn't have a formal degree, but I see her going a far ways with safety in her future. Um, and she loves it. And so, you know, it's it, there's a lot of jobs out there, like you said, Jill. Um, yeah. There's a lot of opportunity. And I think people should take a look at it, even if it's not something that they feel like they have a lot of experience in there's ways of getting that experience and being connected and tapping into resources and and learning about it um and and working in the field so you know even without the degrees Aaron, i just think it's so powerful what you are doing right now to take that time to be able to figure out um what's next for you and that you're working on ways to um, continue to stay engaged and informed with the professional practice that you've chosen and that you're doing some mentoring along the way. I think those things are fantastic. And, you know, for people who are listening and thinking maybe they're in your exact same position, Erin, and they've made a decision just like you have, or maybe they're um, trying to figure out gosh, how do I, how would I do that? Like I'm, I'm listening to Aaron and I'm inspired, but maybe I, maybe I can't for whatever reason, just abruptly leave my job. Um, so how can you do that? Um, and continue to work. And, um, I've done what Aaron's talking about without leaving 
my job and I did it over a long weekend, which I guess would, <laughs> I guess we could say was the fast track version of what you're doing, Erin. Yes. <laughs> um, but I, I did that a couple of jobs ago where I knew it was, I, I could feel in my bones and, you know, you've been talking about, you know, how, you know, maybe we call it our intuition or feeling in our bones, like I've got to find my next best thing. Um, and so I spent a long weekend and maybe I took like one day off and did like a, a weekend intensive with myself where I just focused on thinking about my career. And I started doing a lot of the things that Aaron's been talking about. I, you know, made a list, like physically wrote down the things that I loved about my work, the things that brought me life to do and the things that didn't. And the industries that I've always kind of gravitated toward or could visualize seeing myself in and the ones that I didn't. And Erin, um, you talked a lot about looking at some assessments that you've done before and learning more about yourself. And you talked about your strengths. Um, many of us have had opportunities to do that and some of us haven't. And maybe that's another piece that that um, people can do. I personally found the Strengths Finder assessment through Gallup um, organization particularly useful for me. Um, and that really has informed, you know, the way I approach work. I learned that I'm, my number one strength is something called an activator, which means I have a particular knack and talent at getting people excited about things and moving them forward which works pretty well and translates pretty well into our professional practice when you're trying to, you know, convince people maybe of a new way to do things or a new way to start things. And, um, you know, so after a weekend intensive, I had a list and I knew kind of then where I wanted to focus my efforts and what, what filled me up, not the things like, oh, you know, I could do that job. Sure, I could do that job, but I might not like that particular aspect. And so narrowed it um, in that regard, if you have the luxury to do that. And, I, yeah, I completely agree. I, not to, sorry to interrupt you. That's I completely okay. agree that that's, uh, you know, you may not have the assessment tools, but there are so many resources online that you can find yeah. that'll kind of start you at least the juices flowing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, none of this is, finite none of it is is the it's, none of it's the finish line right? right like we're all a work not only are our careers a work in process as human beings we're a work in process and um and so we're just continually progressing through these changes as people in our careers and I think it's just important to start some if if you if you feel that mm -hmm. I think it's important to start somewhere yeah you know and a weekend a day, a weekend, an hour a day. Yeah. Um, I've thought about doing a quarterly retreat now. I'm starting to figure mm, out how that's going to look for myself. Good idea. And it's going to be a personal quarterly retreat where I do some self-reflection mm. every quarter and just ask myself, what are the things that I'm doing that are adding value? What are the things that I'm doing that are taking away from that? Can I do anything about those things? Just to continue to help my mental health and to help my professional well-being um, to help me personally. And so it's just a whole way of just looking at myself holistically mm -hmm. and deciding what are those things and not waiting, not waiting until like this. And, and there's nothing wrong with this. No. But, um, it, but, you mm -hmm. know, I think that I just need to do a reset and say, I'm going to make that commitment to myself a little bit more frequently. Yeah. And, and am so, I still on the path that I want to be on? 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think, hmm. I think it's possible. I think it's just a matter of finding the things that work for you that start mm-hmm. to get those ideas flowing. Mm-hmm. I think networking is huge. Connecting with people in your community, um, professionally, uh, online, whether it's LinkedIn or Facebook groups or uh, councils and, and coalitions in, in your area, conferences. Um, if you can do any of those things, I think that's always really helpful to just hear what other people are doing and what their experiences are. Yeah. And through, Um, and through volunteering too, I wanted to ask you, you know, when you started out your work with AmeriCorps and you fell in love with some of those things, has that translated into any volunteer work that you do now or that you've done along the way? Actually, that is one of the big things on my list to find ways that I can continue to give back to my community yeah. because that took a back seat and I'm realizing that's something that was a major priority for me yeah. and I lost it. And so it's kind of resetting that and rebalancing my life in a way that I can do those things. Yeah. And so that's, that's on my list mm-hmm. as this is going to be something that's a non-negotiable time does not mm-hmm. interrupt uh, my volunteer time mm-hmm. and the things I want to give back to. Yeah. And so it's deciding what are those things that I want to spend my time doing mm-hmm. and how much time do I want to give? How does it fill my buckets yep. kind of a thing? Yep. So um, really looking at that because that is, I, I actually volunteered for a major portion of my life. And then, um, you know, I think when I went back to get my master's degree, something happened yeah. where that time got eaten up by my master's program. And then I, I didn't go back and reestablish that, unfortunately. And so that I think is something in hindsight that I know I'm missing, yeah. but it's definitely something that fills me up. Yeah. I've done, I've done the same thing. I had, I had overfilled at some point in my life with volunteering to the yes. point where I had to pull back and I pulled back like a hundred percent and got out of volunteering completely. And then my career really filled up a lot of time and then it felt imbalanced, right? It felt mm-hmm. imbalanced of, of giving back in your community and giving to your work and giving to your, your, your family and yourself, which is an important piece, right? And giving to yourself yeah. as well. And, um, and then a couple of years ago, probably about three years ago, I stepped back into volunteering, but I really took a long look at what did I want to do? And I knew that I, I didn't want to overextend myself as I had done in the past. And I really wanted to do something that I, that I felt in my bones was um, important and meaningful to my community and to me. And for me, it's um, volunteering with a, a restorative justice program um, in, my, in my, the county in which I live um, within the juvenile justice system. And I've been doing that for three years. Oh, and that's fantastic. Yeah, I really, really love yeah. that. It gives me more than I think I give. Um, most of the time, (laughs) but those are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think, I think those are ways to find that balance and to know, um, and understand your passions as well. I, I agree. And it's, it is about balance. And I think that's part of, you know, taking a step back to is understanding what, how much of myself do I want to commit in certain areas, Mm -hmm. um, or commit to certain areas and, um, having, uh, to your point, I think it struck a, a, a chord with me when you said you overgave. And I think that's a little bit of where I was when I worked in nonprofit. And then when I went back for my master's degree, I completely pulled back because I was giving so much of myself to the nonprofit that I was working for. Yeah. Um, 
it, while it wasn't volunteer work, there were certain occasions where it was. And, you know, you're spending your weekends and nights at fundraisers and trying <laughs> yep. to connect people and, you know, doing classes and things that are outside of your normal work mm-hmm. day, but in addition to your work day. Mm-hmm. And um, when I left, I, I completely pulled back from all of that. And I feel like it's a void that I have in my life right now. And um, definitely something that's missing and needs to be needs to be reestablished. And so... finding that is going to be important too. Yeah. Oh, well, Erin, it sounds like you are well on your way to the next right thing for you. And I'm so happy that you've shared your story today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. This has been such a pleasure. I cannot tell you how excited I was when you contacted me and asked (laughs) me to be on this podcast. I have watched the training videos and uh, followed you on LinkedIn. And so I'm just like absolutely ecstatic that this was an opportunity that was uh, gifted to Mm. me. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. I appreciate it. I I love following people on their, on their um, professional journeys. And Erin, there was something that had piqued my interest about you a while back, which is why I reached out to you to, to um, ask you to be on the podcast. And thanks for the shout out to the videos. Aaron's talking about the supervisor safety tip video series, um, which I've done for the last number of years, which you'll be able to find at hsi.com if someone's wondering what that means. Um, But thank you again, really, really appreciate it. And thank you all for spending your time listening today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution toward the common good making sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. If you aren't subscribed and want to hear past and future episodes, you can subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any other podcast player that you'd like. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It really helps us connect the show with more and more safety and health professionals like Aaron and I. Special thanks to Naeem Jiraisi, our podcast producer. And until next time, thanks for listening.